Welcome to the Small Groups in the Wesleyan Way podcast, where we are all about going beyond programs, beyond best practices, and beyond curriculum to recover and learn from our Wesleyan roots and to explore the foundations for small groups that produce disciples of Jesus Christ who in turn disciple others. My name is Scott Hughes, and I'm the Director of Adult Discipleship here at Discipleship Ministries. And I'm Steve Matskar, Director of Wesleyan Leadership at Discipleship Ministries. Who's also really excited because his twins are really close. I guess they're, they're in the playoffs? They're, they're in the well, wild card. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm telling people I can't get really excited until the twins beat the Yankees. <laughs> Because the the twins, it's it's great. It's fantastic that the twins have clinched their place for that one game wild card game. Better than my Braves. That yes, it's much better than your Braves. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, you have my condolences. <laughs> They'll be better next year. <laughs> but the twins, the twins made history. Yeah. Because they're, as I understand it, they are the first major league team in the history of major league baseball to have lost. Over a hundred games in the previous season before, and then the, the immediately the next season they're contending for the playoffs. Mm, I, I thought the '91 Braves came close to that. Maybe they didn't quite lose a hundred the year before. Maybe they lost ninety something, but they yeah, were worst. That, I, I just somebody no. said that. Yeah, some sports guy said that. So yeah, I trust you. Um, but you know they you know they went they've performed way above my expectations. Let's just <laughs> hey, put you, it that way. You predicted that they would be in the playoffs, and there you go. That was my point. Is... I did that tongue in cheek, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to give you credit. never expecting that it would happen. <laughs> trying to give you credit. Well, speaking of history, we got a history lesson today. At least, at least I got a history lesson today, and I'll let you introduce our speaker and topic and go for it. Yeah, I um, was very uh, excited. We today we um, interviewed uh, a dear friend and my mentor. Yeah, um, a man who he's a, one of the big reasons why I'm doing the job mm-hmm. here at Discipleship Ministries, um, mm-hmm. and that man's name is Dr. David Lowe's Watson. Yeah. Um, in case. I'm sure some of our listeners are familiar because David has been around for a long time. Many, many, many people have heard him speak. Many have have been students of his. Yeah. Um, but for those of you who don't know, uh, David Lowe's Watson, uh, as you'll hear in the interview, he is British. Yeah. Um, and he also reminds us that his hometown in England <laughs> is Newcastle upon Tyne, Very up in, in the that. north of England. He's a Geordie boy. Okay. Um, well, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, he has he uh, earned his PhD at Duke Divinity School. He was um, one of Frank Baker's students okay. at uh, Duke. And he did his dissertation, his doctoral research and dissertation on the early Methodist class meeting. Ooh. And it was that research and writing on the class meeting that led him to develop what we call today covenant discipleship groups mm. and class leaders for today. He began developing covenant discipleship while he was working on his PhD at Duke, and he was pastoring a little church outside of Durham called Holly Springs United Methodist Church. Okay. Um, after graduating from Duke, 
he went to, he was offered a teaching position in evangelism at mm. Perkins School of Theology, where he taught for six years. And, it, and then Ezra Earl Jones, who was the general secretary at the General Board of Discipleship, now Discipleship Ministries, right. invited him to join the staff. Mm. So David left Dallas and came here to Nashville where he then perfected covenant discipleship. He, he sort of perfected it with students and churches oh, in the Dallas area. And then Ezra Earl, he came here and then developed it as a ministry of discipleship, what is now Discipleship Ministries, hmm. the General Board of Discipleship. Hmm. That happened in the mid eighties. Oh, okay. So he was here, I think, I don't know, eight, nine years, and then went to Wesley Theological Seminary where he taught for several years before coming back to Tennessee but while he was here at Discipleship Ministries, he, his, he wrote um, four books, actually five books. The first Covenant Discipleship resource was called Accountable Discipleship, hmm. which is a tiny little book. Um, he also published his really important book called The Early Methodist Class Meeting. It's, okay, it's one I've read, I think. It's um, Origins and Significance. It's a very important book. If you want to learn about the early Methodist class meeting, that's the book you want to read, yep. The Early Methodist Class Meeting by David Lowe's Watson. And then the three books for covenant discipleship and class leaders, um, gotcha. covenant discipleship, forming Christian disciples, and class leaders, recovering a tradition. Um, he also wrote another really fine book called um, God Does Not Foreclose that was published by Abingdon. Mm -hmm. So he, David, And David has over the years been a very dear friend and really a mentor to me. So it's it's always a joy to go to. We, we went to his house. Yes, we were remote. And um, recorded these interviews with him. So Here let's turn it over to David. Well, we're at doing something a little different with our podcast today. We're, we're doing a remote interview with a very dear friend of mine and mentor. Um, we're sitting in the home of Dr. David Lowe's Watson. Um, and David, as many of our listeners will know, is the man who really developed the ministry that we call Covenant Discipleship. Covenant subject groups today and the off end class leaders. And so we wanted to talk with David today. We're going to do a two part interview with David. Um, is it okay if I call you David? Sure. Oh, yeah. That's what I yeah. thought. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I knew you, you probably wouldn't expect me to call you Dr. Watson. Mm -hmm. So. Um, that we're gonna, I want David to, to talk, we, I wanna talk with David about something that I think is very important that the church, that would be very beneficial for the church and its mission today, the United Methodist Church and its mission of to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, mm -hmm. um, which is a, and it was a very important part of early Methodism, but really was dropped many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, you know, being someone who is a cradle Methodist, mm -hmm. uh, born in the 50s, now you have an idea how old I am, everybody. Mm -hmm. um, but 
being born into the church and baptized as an infant in the Methodist church in this country, I never heard of class leaders until I took the Methodist history and doctrine course from Professor Jim Logan at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. But once I, and then I learned more about it by reading the works of David Lowe's Watson mm -hmm. and then getting to know David as a teacher. Um, and so I thought it would be important for us to begin these interviews by in asking David to sort of just set the stage, introduce people to who the class leader was, uh, maybe where the class leader came from, the origins of the office of class leader, and their role in early Methodism. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the starting point to really understand the office of class leader uh, has to be some basic theological insights of John Wesley. Two things. First of all, his doctrine of the new birth, and then his doctrine of Christian maturity, which we know as the doctrine of Christian perfection. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it does mean maturity. And that sits a little better with people in this day and age. The sermon that he does mostly uh, devote to this is the great privilege of those that are born of God. And his language in this is very insightful, especially for someone who fathered no children. Though his mother had 19 children and uh, probably gave him some insights there in what was then a very large family, though not all of the children lived beyond a few years. In this sermon, he says that if you want to understand the spiritual life, you best understand it by looking at the natural life. Mm -hmm. He talks about a child in the womb who has eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, lungs that do not breathe. Then there's a transition. It is a birthing. It is radical inasmuch as the child now does begin to see, does begin to hear, to breathe. He points out that a child in the womb is not far away from the world. The world is very close, but the child does not experience the world yet. Yeah. Gets all of his or her life directly from the mother. Now we often talk about being born again. And I'm afraid that has been hijacked by quite a number of people, particularly evangelists of a certain kind, who make people feel that unless you make this radical transition and give your life to Christ and become a born-again Christian, or as I've sometimes heard here, born-again, then you really are in for a very nasty end when you reach the close of your life. Uh, certainly you will not make it into eternity. And some pretty unscrupulous evangelists have used this, I'm afraid, to make rather a lot of money. Hmm. But it also has given the doctrine of the new birth a very questionable reputation. Hmm. So people who talk about being born again are talking about a radical transition that is an either-or, 
and people who don't want to look at it that way therefore don't talk about it at all. And what you find is that a child can progress through the church, baptism, Sunday school, confirmation, full church membership, without ever being taught about this spiritual birth. Mm -hmm. It's rather that you become more acquainted with the spiritual life and it's another dimension to the ordinary life. That's not what Wesley describes. He says that when this new birth takes place, there's a radical transition, but not all that radical. Because the day before a baby is born, it's pretty much the same form (laughs) as it's going to be after it's born. It's a very big transition, but not that radical. And that's why this sermon is so important. Because it means that the spiritual life is not the same as the natural life. It's not simply a spiritual dimension to life. It's a totally new life. Mm. But if it's a new birth, the corollary is the same. You then must grow in this new life. Mm -hmm. And if you don't grow, if you're not nurtured, then that life will shrivel. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, this new birth is a dynamic process. There's before, after, and growth, and then maturity. Mm -hmm. Now, if all of that is part of the spiritual life, then what you have is a dynamic in a congregation where people are at various stages of this. Mm -hmm. You also have some who have become mature, in the spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And that's where the office of class leader comes in. Finding people who have grown to maturity in the spiritual life and can help others in the congregation towards the same end. It doesn't make them holier than thou. It makes them seasoned. And once you've used this language, clergy and laity alike know exactly who those people are. Mm-hmm. They're in the congregation already, yeah. but they're not being identified and they're not being recognized. They're not being given the office that they could have if this dynamic of birth and growth in the spiritual life was recognized. Mm-hmm. Now, you ask how the office of class leader came about. It's really quite comforting to be able to say it came about because of a building debt. (laughs) Now, Wesley had been talking about this spiritual growth for a number of years, but in Bristol, he had brought together two societies to form a new united society and had obtained some land in the horse fair in Bristol to build a new building, which he did. It's the new room, which is still there. But in order to build this new room, he took out a mortgage. As an ordained clergyman of the Church of England, he had good credit. Mm. But once these two societies moved together and began to grow, he felt quite rightly it was time to pass this mortgage on to the society. So there was a meeting about this. How are we going to pay for this mortgage? And someone at the meeting said, well, 
why doesn't everyone bring a penny a week? And in those days, a penny was not unsubstantial. In fact, it was big enough to be divided into four. You had mm. half pennies called halfpennies, and fourth of a penny called a farthing. So it was, in fact, quite a meaningful contribution. Then someone said, but a lot of our members won't have a penny a week. Then somebody called Captain Foy, and that's all we know him, his name. I sometimes think that if someone ever discovers exactly who he was, uh, it will be big news, but no one has yet. <laughs> anyway, Captain Foy said, give me 11 or 12 people. I will collect the penny from them. And if anyone doesn't have the penny, I'll put it in for them. And a few other people said, well, give me 11 or 12 names too. And before long, the whole society was divided into groups of 11 or 12 with one person to collect the money and also to begin to get to know the people. Mm -hmm. They were called classes and the person to collect the money was called the leader. Now, that's how it started. Can I stop you there? Sure. For just something I um, would be interested in hearing is, if, and if you know, mm -hmm. is when the, these class leaders would go house to house. And that's, that's how it began, right? Yeah. They would go every week house to house to visit the members of his class. Right, right. So what, what happened when they went and knocked on the door? Well, it's very interesting because Wesley gives us the narrative for this. Mm -hmm. He says that, yes, they went door to door. First of all, it was time consuming. But secondly, they ran into difficulties. Some of the members of the society were household servants. And the owner of the house didn't necessarily allow this to happen. Mm. Right? Another thing that was interesting was that if the class leader began to talk to a member about some issue in their faith, as often as not, somebody else was brought into the conversation. And then you had the person who was talking about this other person giving a different story to the other person's story when they compared the story. In other words, it was gossipy to some extent. <laughs> And so it was Wesley who suggested, look, instead of going round to collect the penny, why doesn't everybody come and bring it? Mm. And that's how the class meeting got started. Okay. Oh, so it was Wesley's idea and not the class leaders right. who were compliant. Right. That's, I got that wrong. Mm -hmm. that, that it was, I thought it was always that the class leaders went to Wesley saying, this is taking up too much of our time well, visiting house to house. Yeah. Can we do this another way? Right. Well, I think probably that was part of the dynamic, yes. Yeah. But the decision to do, actually do it, uh, that came out from Wesley, okay. yes, yes. But obviously with the input from the class leaders. Yeah. Uh, but the point you've made is a very important one. Uh, on foot, you had to go around. And uh, Bristol in those days was not a small city. Okay? So in fact, this whole idea of a class meeting and of class leaders came out of 
the financial necessities of the society. Mm-hmm. But what Wesley also notes, and this is in a plain account that he, he gives this, he also notes that once they began to meet, then they really began to experience grace upon grace in Christian mm-hmm. fellowship. They became more kindly disposed towards each other. In other words, what happens in any small group that is working well? Mm-hmm. And this, by the way, raises another question. Because we live in a culture that has become absolutely inundated with small groups. In fact, there was a book written in 1970 of the history of small groups. I mean, this had been going on for a generation already, and Mm -hmm. it still continues. And you have people talking about the dynamics of small groups and, and the way you lead small groups and the interaction of small groups. Um, And a friend of mine uh, once said, only half-jokingly, that he felt that eternal punishment would consist of being put in a small group to discuss it forever. And uh, all of this means that the class meeting already has a genre. Mm -hmm. So our task as church leaders, both clergy and laity, is to determine the particularity of the early class meeting. Mm-hmm. Because, once again, we've also got Sunday school classes. Mm-hmm. And in large churches, those are a major part of forming community. And those classes go through a life cycle. I taught a class just two weeks ago that, in fact, is reaching the end of its life mm-hmm. uh, because most of the people are now uh, in their 70s. And it cannot be much longer that they hold together unless they bring new people in, except that the new people, the younger people, want to form their own classes. Mm. So the Sunday school class has to have its own lifestyle as well. So when the classes started meeting, what, what... can you describe what happened in a class meeting when they, when they met with their class leader? It really was something of a catechesis. In other words, a question and an answer. The leader would put the question. And the questions concerned the way in which people were growing in their faith, but at the same time living out their faith in the world. Mm-hmm. Wesley referred to these collectively as works of mercy and works of piety. Mm -hmm. But he did stipulate what these were. He drew up a set of what he called general rules. And in the general rules, you had both the works of mercy and piety itemized, Mm Your spiritual life concerned your prayer life. Uh, It concerned your inward faith and outward faith. But it also concerned how you were helping your neighbor and how you were looking for ways in which you could help people who were poor and in need. It was a balanced approach to discipleship. And these general rules were published in 1734, 43. 43, you're yeah. quite right. Yes. Uh, in Actually, in my hometown of Newcastle yeah, upon Tyne. That's, yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. 
and uh, essentially gave a blueprint for how a class meeting would function. Um, it's interesting that these general rules were, in many ways, a more down-to-earth approach to the Christian life. The first kind of small group that Wesley introduced to his societies were called bands. And these he learned from the Moravians. Mm -hmm. The Moravians, in fact, were in a Protestant tradition in Europe that preceded the Reformation. But they became missionaries and took the gospel also to the New World. And that was where Wesley first encountered them mm -hmm. on his voyage to the New World. So when he got back from Georgia, where he too had been a missionary, he began to have fellowship with the Moravians mm -hmm. and in fact attended one of their societies in London. And these bands were very intensive. In fact, he drew up a set of rules based on the Moravian bands. And these were drawn up in December of 1738. The design of our meeting is to speak each of us freely and plainly the true state of our souls, with the faults we have committed in thought, word or deed, and the temptations we have felt since our last meeting. Have you the forgiveness of your sins? Have you the witness of God's Spirit? Has no sin, inward or outward, dominion over you? Do you desire to be told of all your faults, and that plain and home? Do you desire that every one of us should tell you from time to time whatsoever is in his heart concerning you? And do you desire that we should come as close as possible, cut to the quick, and search your heart to the bottom? Well, that's a culture shock for those of us <laughs> in the church today. And... This was the way in which the bands functioned in what you might call a sectarian approach to Christian mm -hmm. discipleship. You either met these very high standards or you, you didn't join the fellowship. Mm -hmm. okay. And in fact, this is what was Wesley was causing Wesley himself some questions. Okay. Which is why when it came to the class meeting, the rules that he published for them took a much more practical approach and one which allowed people who probably had never been to church before not to be put into the deep end of spiritual life before it had even started. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think the class meetings were such a means of grace and why the class leaders emerged in such a pastoral role. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for this, David, mm -hmm. for this introduction. Um, we're going to continue this conversation, mm -hmm. but for now we need to stop for this part one. Um, and so in part two, we're going to talk more about, some more about, maybe I, I'd like to hear from you more about how the class leaders led the class. Mm -hmm. And then we want to talk about the class leader for today mm -hmm. and what the class leader 
where how class leaders are formed today and their role in the life of congregations in the 21st century. So I want to thank you for now, David, and we'll be back later. Okay. Well, I know our listeners got a lot out of that. I know I got a lot out of that. It was great just to, I guess, literally, I guess, kind of sit at his feet <laughs> as I was doing that. <laughs> yes, yeah, Scott was literally sitting at David Lowe's Watson's yeah. feet. Well, which is not a bad place to be. Monitoring the quality of the sound. Yeah, which hopefully I did a good job. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but what a treat. And, and he was, at least in this particular part of the episode, and, and we get to do this twice, there's going to be two episodes on, on this, you know, he brought up that particular sermon that I had sort of forgotten about, that I do remember from seminary days, um, where Wesley um, sort of talks about salvation in a holistic way uh, about the new birth, when he compares a spiritual new birth, and I can't say spiritual the way David Lowe's Watson does. <laughs> he says it much more eloquently than I can. Um, but the spiritual birth versus the physical birth. Um, and, and so anything you wanted to add to, to what David said there? I mean, that was very helpful. I don't think I can add anything to it, but I thought it was a very helpful, um, and I'll say unexpected, mm. yeah. um, but that's the way, you know, <laughs> I, I I know David long enough to know that he's going to do this the way he wants to do it. And it was great that he provided that, I think, very helpful theological foundation for yes. why class meetings and the class the 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 work the ministry of the class leader were so yeah. important to the method of methodism yep that it's where those the people who um were experienced the new birth were nurtured mm. and helped to mature and grow up because yeah. that's what babies that's what we need to do with people who are when when we're born we need to be nurtured and help to grow up and mature. Which, so then, therefore, we can say the method of Methodism had nothing to do with food or <laughs> church meetings. Well, it had to do with spiritual food, the Word of oh, God. Oh, look at you. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And the sacraments. Oh. The Lord's Supper is very, true. Is, very is, is necessary food for our, for our souls. Fair enough. That works. So there is food involved. <laughs> We're Methodists. There's food. <laughs> food, potluck, singing. It's all there. Well, yeah, that was very helpful. So that was episode one. We're going to get to hear from him in our next episode as well. We do have a giveaway winner, and our winner is Justin. And Justin, I, I apologize now for pronouncing your last name. Justin Hook. I think that's right. He is a pastoral associate at St. Michael's the Archangel Church in Canton, Ohio, our first Catholic winner. So thanks, Justin, for, for telling us that uh, they, he's enjoyed this, and this is good for adult formation, and even a Catholic like him has enjoyed That's it. That's fantastic. Yeah, so we'll get Justin some swag. So uh, reach out to us, um, and you two can win some swag. And we also want to know what kind of questions you have for us, that topics we can explore. You can find us on Twitter. You can find me at Rev Scott's Tweets and also at UMC Adult Form, which stands for Adult Formation. And you can find me at S Manskar. That's at S-M-A-N-S-K-A-R. And you can find more resources like this on our website, umcdiscipleship.org. This has been paid for by your apportionment dollars at work. And so we look forward to being in ministry with you. Until next time. Peace. Small Groups in the Wesleyan Way podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. 
visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.